episode 98 of Late Night Linux, recorded on the 14th of September, 2020. I'm Joe, and with me are Phelan. Good evening. Graham. Hello. And Will. Hello. Yeah, so here we are again, the middle of September. We'll be talking about Linux and some other stuff. We may sneak a little bit of politics in there, but don't worry, it'll be in a specific and limited way. <laughs> like an oven-ready meal. <laughs> <laughs> So the first bit of news that we should talk about is not specifically Linux related, but it's kind of Linux adjacent. And that is that NVIDIA are to acquire ARM for $40 billion. They paid an arm and a leg for that. (laughs) 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 This is only four years after SoftBank bought ARM for $32 billion. So $2 billion a year. Not bad, eh? Yes, I, I mean, I, not to us mortals, it's it's incredible, isn't it? But I mean, I've, I read on Hacker News that in terms of investment quality, other other investment funds have made more money. So who knows? <laughs> yeah, and it's not all cash either. A lot of it's shares, and it's a very complicated, ha ha business speak um, kind of thing. If you read the press release about it, but it may not actually happen. But we'll have to see about that, whether China's regulators and the UK regulators and EU and all the rest of it lets it happen. But let's just assume that it is going to go through as planned. Otherwise, they wouldn't have announced it. What does it mean? Is it good news or bad news? I think potentially it's bad news if you are a small-scale, no-brand tablet manufacturer out in China. This could if if it does go to the US with Nvidia headquartered there, this could lock you out of ARM processors altogether, um, and I think that that's bad for us as as end users. I, I think it's bad for the, the the market moving forwards and and us getting well, frankly, getting cheap devices. ARM have always painted themselves as the the independent player here, and tying up with another silicon vendor. And NVIDIA will probably ship their graphics cores along with ARM processors going forwards. I think it's just shrinking the market and giving silicon manufacturers, or rather device manufacturers, less choice in what chips they put in their their devices. Except it's not another silicon manufacturer, because ARM never actually made anything. They only licensed the designs out. And so that made them independent. It meant that whoever wanted to do business with them could be competitors of each other, whereas now they're kind of selling to the competition because NVIDIA makes chips as well. It seems like a very strange setup that we're going to end up with. Yeah, you're right. I I think it's going to generally reduce the options that people have when they want to put some silicon in their machine. Uh, Potentially, this could be good news for RISC-V. Maybe if China do get locked out or uh, people don't want to do a deal specifically with NVIDIA uh, and ARM, uh, assuming they stay as two separate places or just NVIDIA if they become one company, it, maybe there's a gap in the market there for Risk Five to to step in, accelerate their production, accelerate their development, and mop up potentially a very large uh, market of low end devices. Yeah, I think Will's right, and the, the, I think the feeling around ARM has been it's been this kind of bullish feeling for a while, despite the you know the relative maybe flat performance over the last couple of years. ARM is taking over everything, and so it. It was always going to be, I think something like this was always going to happen to ARM unless they, they played it very strongly and to try and remain impartial. I didn't see that happening, really. 
the biggest disappointment for me is that ARM were the, the last vestiges of the great UK home computing explosion of the 80s. Um, there's very little else left. And I know that SoftBank bought them four years ago, but it does feel like this is potentially the end of the era now and and we've got nothing left all of the crown jewels of that era are gone yeah i agree they may as well turn the lights out as they leave yeah cambridge is closed well they do say they're going to keep the operations going in cambridge but do we just not believe them then chinny chin chin (laughs) (laughs) yeah i mean short term they will but you know in another 5 10 15 years you have to assume that the operations will just move over to america yeah i think so um and that's sad. Yeah, and and for you know, for the UK and Europe, there are very few examples of this kind of industry that can compete on a global level. We know that America dominates, and China and Taiwan and South Korea dominate in other areas. And you know, there's very little that we can use as a wedge to create the next generation of kind of tech entrepreneurs, especially over here. All right. Well, let's talk about the Ubuntu community drama that's been brewing over the last week or so. And it seems to be mostly about the community council and how that used to be a thing. And now there's only one member on the community council, and that is Mark Shuttleworth. Refresh me. What is and was the community council? Will, you know about that, surely. Well, you'd think so, wouldn't you? But (laughs) not really. It's kind of been mothballed, in my opinion, for some years now. Um, The idea was, as I understand it, and I could well be wrong, it was a group of Ubuntu contributors who were voted in by the community from a shortlist nominated by Mark, I believe, and they would act as guardians of the community. They would resolve conflict and help organize and um, put structure into what the community were doing. Uh, But for the longest time, it has been a bit of a toothless organization and Well, in my opinion, and this is only my opinion, as Canonical have focused more on specific, uh, like vertical markets such as WSL, cloud, Kubernetes, whatever, the the general overarching community has taken a sideline to some very specific communities that were being targeted. My interaction with the community council over the last sort of five years or so has been pretty slim, um, and I don't really know what they've been doing. Well, seemingly not very much because nobody's left. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) This isn't just about the community council. This was a thread on the Ubuntu discourse, basically about how Canonical seems to have abandoned the community and Shuttleworth in particular hasn't been taking any interest in the community. But then he pops up in the thread and says, well, no, hang on. I have been around. I've just been busy. And uh, he says, I am rather frustrated at my own team because I have long allocated headcount for a community lead at Canonical, a post which has not been filled. It's surprising to me that no one has filled that job when there are obvious candidates who we can all think of, but we probably shouldn't name names. Like, is it that they haven't been offered it, didn't want it, or what? Like, it, that just seems a very strange thing for him to say to me. But it seems that he had a good think about it over the weekend. And now he has said that he's going to revive the Ubuntu Community Council. So we'll have to see who wants to join it and what happens with that. But um, it seems nominations are open and people who want to be on it, now's the time to speak up. And to be clear, there are some very 
active and very well respected and very busy and very good members of the community out there um, from all of the various flavors there really are some outstanding people who should be in these leadership positions who should be making decisions and whose voice should be heard by the the community on whole so yeah if you are an ubuntu member and you do get to vote for this then i think you should have some really good candidates up if they want to stand yeah, I can imagine it's quite a thankless task sometimes because, as he says, it's one of these things where you're either appearing to not be needed or when you are needed, it's an absolutely awful situation that requires sort of diplomatic kung fu that not a lot of people might want to have, to be honest. I'm pretty diplomatic. Maybe I could do it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Maybe I could be the community manager. If it's paying all right, Mark, give me a shout. I'll do it. You'd sort that community out till there was none left and job <laughs> yeah, done. Yeah. yeah, I'd make sure that uh, the first uh, order of business was switch away from that bloody gnome to uh, XFCE, <laughs> and then we'd be laughing. Then deal with snaps. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and then Reddit, and then Slashdot, <laughs> and then Facebook. No, you see, the key to dealing with Reddit is just not look at the fucker and just totally ignore it. That's my tried and tested method. Occasionally lurk there if someone links me. Okay, this episode is sponsored by Datadog, the unified monitoring and analytics platform for comprehensive visibility into cloud, hybrid, and multi-cloud environments. Quickly analyze the performance of your Linux servers in real time with customizable dashboards and troubleshoot Linux issues in seconds with a unified view of your metrics, traces, and logs all in one place. With integrations for over 400 technologies, you can even use Datadog to monitor key Linux source metrics alongside data from the rest of your stack to get full visibility into the health and performance of your entire infrastructure. Start your Datadog trial today by visiting datadog.com slash late night Linux. Start your free trial, create one dashboard, and you'll get a free Datadog t-shirt. That's datadog.com slash late night Linux. Well, in Linux and Amiga news, <laughs> I think we need to throw to Graham on this one. The Amiga fast file system makes a minor comeback in the Linux kernel, apparently. I think it was broken. So, I mean, it's been an official part of the Linux kernel for quite some time, but it, it wasn't working. And I, I can attest to that because I couldn't read my Amiga compact flashcards on, on my Linux machine, which was deeply frustrated. <laughs> I had to, uh, I had to use UAE. <laughs> From my Linux desktop just to be able to access my drive. So I am overjoyed that finally um, it's been fixed, even though it's not the best file system on the Amiga. How many did they have? Well, there's, there's actually quite a few, but um, <laughs> mo most of oh, us do use... tell us all of them <laughs> in depth. Well, <laughs> most of us use PSF, PFS3, so not two or one. It's the third the third professional <laughs> file system. And not four for there to be one too many. <laughs> and not AFS. Could you not read FAT32 or FAT16 or whatever on an Amiga? Yeah, you can. There's, there is a native. Well, if, if in uh, Workbench OS three point one, um, you could <laughs> you could natively read uh, fat file systems if you had the right data type installed. Uh, performance is really bad, um, and also its compatibility with Amiga permissions was very bad as well. So ah, I hope that happens. Yeah, it, it it kind of breaks things. So you can do it for kind of convenience of reading those one point four. Big floppy disks. God, I'm trying to remember the size. <laughs> <laughs> but really, you want to use the uh, 1.8 meg floppy disks on the Amiga with the fast file system. 1.8? What? Yeah, yeah. Can't you 
format of 1.4 to 1.8 with some trickery. It's the hardware mechanism on the on yeah on the on the Amiga drives. Yeah. Uh. So on the, yeah, they were called HD, weren't they? I think. That's amazing with technology like that, that they never got a, a firmer grasp around the uh, IT throat. <laughs> oh, Did that brilliant. come out in like the mid-2000s then, yeah? <laughs> I, I, I can turn on my Amiga and be editing something quicker than it takes Vim to appear on my terminal. Tracker files. <laughs> <laughs> I've got an interesting story about USB floppy drives. Go on, then. I say Interesting. <laughs> Um, so I wanted to read some old Acorn ADFS format discs oh, for the other day. What the fuck is with you two? So I went on eBay and bought uh, a USB floppy drive, and I assumed that I could just plug it in, and Linux has got ADFS support in the kernel, and I could read the discs. It turns out that USB floppy drives are a bit of a con. You put a disc in, it reads it into some kind of internal memory, and then presents itself as a USB flash drive. So the floppy drive itself can only read FAT, I assume FAT32 and FAT16 format disks. It can't read arbitrary format disks, and you can't control it as you would a real floppy drive. So you can't read Amiga disks or Acorn disks. Can it not just dump it into one hour, one block like you could do with, like, say, DD or something? No, because the, the, the disk drive itself needs to be able to understand the format of the disk before it will even present it to you. Jesus. And it's presumably got some sort of operating system on yeah. that USB floppy yeah. drive then. Interesting. Oh, I take back my mockery from 30 seconds ago. Maybe I could reflash the drive with my own firmware. Hmm. <laughs> I'm sure I've read about solutions, but I've not looked into it. Because my floppy drive still works. <laughs> <laughs> That's a bridge that you can cross in five years' time. On to a bit of admin then. And first of all, thank you everyone for supporting us on PayPal and Patreon. It really is appreciated. If you want to join those people, you can go to latenightlinux.com slash support. And do remember that for $5 or more on Patreon, you can get an advert-free RSS feed. And if you want to get in contact, latenightlinux.com slash contact. Now, Long-time listeners of the show might remember Paddy, who used to be on Linux Luddites with me. Well, he has had a circumstance change, shall we say. He's not doing the show that he was doing before, and he's started a new one. But before you get too excited, you can hear his words, but not his voice, because he didn't want to be on microphone. So he just writes the script and then he pushes it through a text-to-speech thing, which is, to be fair, the best text-to-speech I've ever heard, and then makes the MP3 out of it. And that is called Tabs Not Spaces. So he decided to troll people with the name, or troll 50% of the people, but not me, with the name. So do check it out. There is actually now a transcript as well for every episode, so you can just read it. And it is, um, it's interesting. The show he was doing before at The Other Place uh, was really useful, and this is also really useful if you want to keep up to date with the news. Before, he used to be very neutral, but now he is being quite opinionated about things and letting his politics creep in a little bit here and there. His uh, questionable politics, shall we say, to us at least, being anti-Brexit. Oh, no, we, no, we, we think Brexit's neither a good or bad idea. We decided that, didn't we? But anyway, check it out, Tabs Not Spaces. There'll be a link uh, in the show notes. And also check out John O'Bacon's book club. It's the people-powered book club. Essentially, John O has got a new book to promote, and he's come up with a typically John O genius <laughs> way to promote it. Community, which is, community, community. Yeah, to to engage with the community and do like this book club thing where you can ask questions and you know get more value out of it. And fair play to him. 
So there'll be a link in the show notes to it anyway, but it's his people-powered book club. So uh, do check that out. Okay, this episode is sponsored by Learned. Sign up at automation.link and use the code LATENIGHTLINUX to upgrade and get 50% off a year's subscription to a new DevOps training site called Learned. The site covers the entire DevOps stack, starting with the basics of infrastructure as code, and includes almost eight hours of lessons on Terraform, Ansible, Jenkins, and loads of industry tips along the way. If you're interested in learning DevOps, take advantage of this offer by visiting automation.link and upgrade with 50% off with the code LATENIGHTLINUX. That's automation.link and the code LATENIGHTLINUX. Let's talk about fixing the internet. Because I think we can all agree that the internet is a bit shit now. And this has kind of evolved out of a conversation that we've had in our private Telegram group and before we record over the last few weeks. And we were kind of thinking about how to talk about this. And then there was an open letter from Mitchell Baker, the Mozilla CEO, who is urging the European Commission to seize a once in a generation opportunity essentially to regulate the internet. So I suppose we should make our case for why the internet is a bit shit first. Will, you kind of first put it into words, I think. Back in the good old days when the internet slash the web, and we'll use that term interchangeably here, I think, back in the good old days when it was just nerds, you knew what you were getting and it was technical information and like-minded people communicating with each other. And then the normals got involved and marketing departments got involved and Compared to what it was like, yes, there the, the experience is richer and we've got Netflix and YouTube and muckyjpegs.com and all of those kinds of things. <laughs> but equally, the, the web is primarily adverts, clickbait, cons and uh, misinformation and uh, just downright lies. And you can't take anything at face value. You have to read between the lines. And you can spend all of your time just trawling up and down uh, the internet, just reading, well, garbage and lies. And so these days, the internet is even more of a wild frontier than it ever was. You can't expect um, elderly people to use it without getting in trouble of some sort. You can't expect kids to be able to use it without stumbling across stuff that probably isn't appropriate, regardless of your liberal views. And so like, what's the point? What's What purpose does it serve? Everyone's depressed because all they read is bad news all day. Um, the only good thing it does is when I want to look for some code on Stack Overflow and copy and paste it into my work. That's literally the only <laughs> use it has. Well, and the mucky JPEGs, of course. Oh, yeah, fair point. Well, and of course, you've got to think about the political manipulation that we've seen in various elections and referenda, etc. And we don't know necessarily to what extent the the meddling actually worked or whatever but i suspect it was uh, <laughs> thoroughly and very well <laughs> you guys are leaving the eu and meanwhile we have jim core the useless man tit of the cores <laughs> group telling us all to stop injecting like what chicken embryos into our arms and stop wearing masks like what the fuck yeah and uh, that fellow from that band from the 90s, Ian Brown, him saying, like, oh, yeah, don't wear a mask and all that. The problem clearly started when normals got on the internet, and that happened because of smartphones and social media around the same time. But we can't change that. We can't go back and not invent the smartphone and not invent 
Facebook and Twitter and stuff. So what do we do about this? Is regulation the answer? It, it feels like it isn't the answer to me, but I don't have a better solution. Yeah, the internet thrived in the beginning because it was free and anybody could do anything. And we're now, sadly, reaping the seeds of that. Oh, wait a minute. Mixing my metaphors there. <laughs> yeah, but I know what you mean. The, the thing is that the people who started the internet and the web didn't sort of take account of the fact that there are a lot of bastards out there who will take advantage of it. Mm. They were all like-minded people, nerds who just wanted to share information with each other and mucky jpegs as we keep <laughs> going back to. So they just didn't foresee all the, the bastards who would fuck it up. It kind of feels like we should have two internets, one for us and one for them, and then we need never go on there one. Well, in, in a way we do. We have Facebook for them, and then yeah. we have the internet for us. Yeah, unfortunately, Facebook has a nasty habit of spiraling out into the real world and causing real issues, though. That's the only other problem. I think this is a real revolution, the internet. I think, you know, in the future, in hundreds of years' time, people will look at this moment like the Industrial Revolution, and it's something that we just haven't got the perspective to be able to deal with. It's just something that has changed everything so completely that it's it's very difficult to navigate our way around it. And I'd be, even though I don't think, I, <laughs> I think I can't avoid regulation, I'm instinctively against it simply because I don't trust the people who are going to regulate it. That's the problem that we're going to have. But I think this is part of like, if this was a science fiction book, this is part of human progress that we have something that we have to get through and something that we have to learn from and something that we have to move on from. I, and we're dealing, we're right in the thick of the storm right now, dealing with all of the fallout that it's brought us. But there's no way we could have kept it in the back. I can remember being so excited about being connected to the internet. You know, it was one of the fortunate people to get it early on in the 90s or e or even in the 80s when you you know you got a modem and you connected to some other computer and there was no way you can put that back in the box it's, everyone's going to feel the same kind of sense of joy and connectivity by by being able to do it nor should we but we need to find a way of i don't think regulating it but at least making it more democratic and not letting a few corporations rule it but isn't it making it democratic that fucked it up in the first place? Making it available to the masses because the masses are idiots. <sighs> there was an there was an awful lot of shit on the internet. I know you like to say about mucky JPEGs, but I mean, I've got the first edition of the Internet Yellow Pages, a physical book, <laughs> and you should see the, wow. the list of alt news groups you could travel you, and the kind of unregulated stuff they contained back then. I mean, everybody got the anarchist cookbook and all that kind of stuff, and we were all sharing that kind of stuff freely. Not me, of course, but that's what <laughs> other people did. And you know, I don't think it's ever been any different. It's just simply that now billions of people are on it rather than maybe you know hundreds of thousands i think the main problem we have is the fact that people are treating things that they see from you know oh this person who i trust shared this thing to me therefore i will trust it as equally as i trust that person nobody's doing any background research and stuff nobody's going hang on a sec let's do a reverse image search of this guy is that a real person or not and people are treating things with equal sort of thing as they would meeting somebody on the street. And while gossip can kind of get around between, you know, people on the road, it can be far more dangerous, I think, in a web. And the problem is people don't have the skills to deal with that. Like, I, I kind of have wonder, back when they had the printing press for the first time, did they, you know, a whole lot of spam get printed up and sent around to various places inciting riots, which I think probably kind of did happen. 
Um, Bored just seen a sped up version of it here. Yeah, and it'll be driven by AI, you know, like Cambridge Analytica. They don't need to actually come up with a campaign or a Daily Mail headline to to make it kind of viral. They can dynamically adapt to the way that they know people are reading it because they control the whole stack. And that's really worrying. We'll probably link to The Social Dilemma, like a docudrama type program about, you know, various people who've left Facebook, Google the likes and, you know, telling how terrible it all is on the inside. And, you know, if we do this one thing, you know, two things that'll fix it, you know, drop screen time, all these different things. Yet the modern media is equally to blame for a lot of the stuff that's getting stoked. It's not just the Internet. Yes, the Internet is terrible. It's really good at promoting false information, things like that. But all the various major media corporations are equally responsible for these things and they're all doing the same thing as well. So it's it's far more nuanced and complicated than just the internet is to blame for the downfall of civilization currently, I think. Another place that the evilness comes from is the the internet or rather the browser's ability to allow the content producers to do things like A-B testing where they can test either an alternate headline or an alternate layout or an alternate colour or alternate wording, and they can test which of those is most effective at getting people to engage in content. And so we are being experimented on and manipulated and driven down certain paths because they know what works. And in the days of the printing press, you you didn't know in in that way. You didn't get that instant feedback. And so we are being treated as a as an experiment and they know exactly which buttons to push to get reactions essentially maybe if they just eliminate the ad tech industry problem solved (laughs) well i think that would go a long way well yeah like i've said many times we should go back to the very very first days of advertising on the internet where it was based on the content rather than on the user viewing the content Mm. like the ads we have in this show they're based on what we assume people listening to it will be interested in. Yeah. And that seems like a sustainable model to me because it's not invading people's privacy any more than, well, you're interested in Linux because you're listening to this show, so therefore you'll probably be interested in the things that we're advertising. And surely that is what we have to go back to, but it's, it just isn't profitable enough for text-based content, it seems. And in, even with podcasts, you're getting dynamic insertion now based on certain demographics of people. And... So we just seem to be going more and more down that ad tech road. And maybe it's not a problem with the internet or the web. It's a problem with monetizing it. Yeah, I mean, I think that one of the real scary things is the fact that for me, Firefox is dying a gradual death here. And the only other solution then is what you use a Chrome engine with Google tapped into every single click where your mouse is hovering and God knows what other metrics that they're able to pull out of that application. And while, yeah, you can get like a Chrome engine to run everything else, if we don't have a browser that is at least championing some form of privacy, I think we're in a really bad place for this. I mean, obviously, it has such measly market share right now that that's pretty much happened for anybody who's not already using Firefox. But I think this is probably where uh, regulations could come in, where the likes of the EU could say, you know, you're allowed to see who clicks on a thing. You're allowed to see all these things, but all the other stuff has to go. The fingerprinting, the, you know, various bits of uh, code to track people between sites. You can, you know, they have to introduce laws that say, 
if you go to one website you can track them on that one website that's yours and where they click nothing else no hovering of mouse all these sort of extra things i've got a great name for it right what we could do is we could have a feature in the browser like an option you can toggle on and we could call it do not track Hmm. yeah yeah that works (laughs) it would just work instantly wouldn't it I'm pretty sure anybody who has that checked gets double tracked on every website. <laughs> exactly, yeah. What are you trying to hide, you terrorists? <laughs> That's the, really the problem that we have. We're a little bit like Keir Starmer. We can vent and rage and say all these things that we want to say about how things are and how they should be improved, but we're now the ones with the least amount of power over how it's how it's accomplished. Um, the fact that we have an open source operating system and potentially open source phones is a huge plus that we should somehow use to our advantage. But I can't even see that spreading enough to become a movement. Well, maybe we become us and them, like we talked yeah. about two different internets. Mm. And maybe we will be forced to use Tor or whatever the next generation of something like that is. Well, in a, in a way, I feel like it is because I, I don't have um, a public Facebook account. I certainly don't use it in the way that other people do. And... And just on normal day-to-day living, I mean, if, if you've got kids at school or, or things like that, so even even local councils will often communicate and update through Facebook pages like schools will. And you already are, like, separate from, from the rest of the internet society as they see it. It drives me mad. It's not that hard to have a simple web page and people are just more and more tying into these single-entity things like Facebook. It's really infuriating to see where... I think that'd be the thing if somebody could develop a nice, simple, single node server that people could deploy and they could have whatever distributed websites, nice and easy, perfect. Make it all federated. The, the, well, the way the web used to be, what's the point in the internet if everybody's using bloody Cloudflare as a, a CDN and then the minute Cloudflare goes down, all the web goes with it? Like, it's stupid. All right, well, that's probably enough time spent on that, but I get the feeling we may return to this at some point. And uh, do let us know what you think, latenightlinux.com slash contact. Okay, this episode is sponsored by DigitalOcean. Go to do.co slash LNL and get $100 credit with 60 days to use it. DigitalOcean offers VMs or droplets, as they call them, with full root access in data centers all over the world with super fast storage and networking. These droplets start from $5 a month and go all the way up to huge amounts of RAM and CPU power so you can deploy exactly what's right for your project. You can pick from multiple distros and start from a basic installation or pick from dozens of one-click apps and be up and running in seconds. You can add more block or object storage if you need it and DigitalOcean has managed databases and Kubernetes, great backups and snapshots and a really useful Teams feature. So go to do.co slash LNL and get started with your $100 credit. That's do.co slash LNL. Let's do a quick KDE corner then. And we've got quite a lot of links here, so we're going to have to race through this a little bit. Um, The one that caught my eye was Plasma 5.20 will alert you if your disk is failing. That's pretty cool. Yeah, only 10 years too late for the bug report, but hey, uh, (laughs) it's finally to integrate Smartmon tools, which have existed for bloody ages. Um, So yeah, well, to be honest, it, it is a, what you would hope, simple fix and a simple way to highlight when your disks go wrong rather than have to email yourself from your own machine which is currently what I have to do. Um, and yeah, so with 520 coming along, there's also a redesign of the Bluetooth page. It was kind of split across three things. You know, you had the devices, you had the um, 
adapters that you've got and then you've got you know what way anybody sends you stuff to via bluetooth where you want it to drop they've merged those all together really nicely so that's kind of cool and uh, a really handy feature which is ridiculously stupid but it's annotations in spectacle which is the uh, desktop snapshot and tool which uh just drawing squiggly lines of this thing here click that bit that is a very handy thing for a screenshot tool so i'll be looking forward to that no you just do what you do in xfce which is take your screenshot and then it says do you want to save it do you want to share it do you want to open with yeah open with gimp open it with gimp and then draw your thing and then uh, you know export it yeah i, I do that with create it and then every time i spend about 20 minutes trying to figure it out how to like export that but what i do is i take a screenshot of the edited file in Krita <laughs> because I don't know how to export it properly. And then I send that screenshot on. Yeah, it's great. Flawless. And Fedora 34 KDE spin is planning a switch to Wayland by default. They will still have an X session as well that you can use if, if you run into problems. But this is long after Fedora GNOME switched to Wayland by default. KDE kind of never had the advantage of some of the libraries that um gnome did for things like egt i think it's called it's the nvidia based graphics layer or something um but it's good it's coming along i'm not exactly racing towards trying to use it i mean i'm fairly happy with the way mine works right now i don't know graham do you use wayland on yours no i don't actually i i've i mean partly because i've got nvidia hardware and i like wobbly windows <laughs> <laughs> they are very important all right, so it's been Academy, and there's been an awful lot happening. So give us a summary. Yeah, there's a huge load of things. I haven't even managed to get through all the Academy stuff because I had a busy work week last week, and there is absolutely tons. It's like seven stacked days of stuff. So I've linked to every single one of those, and uh, good luck putting that in the doc there, Joe. I'm just copying it verbatim, mate. Good. <laughs> <laughs> uh, things like there's ocular page numbers where you can open a PDF with a link with the page link as part of it. it yeah simple things i mean it's simple things but like if you've got certain stuff saved that way i think it's quite handy it's quite cool uh you'll be able to tell kyle that audacious which is a xmms like slash winamp like audio player has now got proper drag and drop fixed so i mean he'll be sorted now all right and then there's uh, a lot of qml fixes for large complicated apps that has come through as well so um there's absolutely mountains of stuff in there. Lots of work. There's been work on the the Google Summer Code people have done loads of things. Like Krita has got a whole lot of new plugins and things like that done as well. And uh, they've got a great website about how to code up new apps for KDE. Intro to people. I'm sure they didn't copy Popey and Co's work on that earlier. I think there's a lot of stuff in there. Um, and uh, yeah, I've still got to get through it myself, to be quite honest. Right. Well, we better get out of here then. We'll be back in a couple of weeks when we'll be talking about who knows what. But until then, I've been John. I've been Phelan. I've been Graham. And I've been Will. See you later.